Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of The Articulate Fly. On this episode, I'm joined by Nellie Williams, Trout Unlimited's Alaska Program Director. Nellie shares her journey from the Midwest to Alaska, discusses TU's extensive work in the state, and updates us from the front lines on recent developments with respect to the proposed pebble mine. But before we get to the interview, just a couple of housekeeping items. At the end of July, the Army Corps of Engineers released its final environmental impact statement, putting Pebble Mine one step closer to becoming a reality. No doubt you've seen many related posts on social media. If you oppose the proposed Pebble Mine, liking and sharing these posts is simply not enough. I challenge you to take five minutes today to tell a friend, a family member, or a coworker who has never heard of Pebble what is at stake, why it's important to you, and how to take action. Everything you need is in this episode's show notes. And if you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a review in the podcatcher of your choice. It would really help us out. And now on to the interview. Well, welcome to the Articulate Fly, Nellie. Hi, Marvin. So happy to be on. Well, I appreciate you uh, making the time for me so early in the morning out in Alaska. And we have a tradition on the Articulate Fly. We always ask all of our guests to share their earliest fishing memory. Oh, boy. Uh, I am a, a third-generation bluegill fisherwoman. Um, I, I have very early memories of fishing with my grandma and grandpa and mom uh, on the Mississippi River uh, for bluegills with cane poles and worms. And uh, my sister and I were tiny um, when we'd go out in our, our little boat and um, find a, find a snag and, and see what, see what we could catch. Um, and really good memories. Although I didn't like eating them then of bluegill fish fries and um, uh just just really good good family time so those are my my very earliest memories really are are fishing and playing on the mississippi yeah very neat i have to agree with you on eating bluegill they have a ton of bones <laughs> they do although uh i've i've got a technique that my my grandma and great aunt have taught me that are it's it's fantastic and you can get around the bones Oh, very neat. Well, uh, sometime when we meet in person, you'll have to share that with me. Um, so, you know, you started fishing for bluegill on the upper Mississippi. When did you move to the dark side of fly fishing? <laughs> well, it was kind of a, a, a slow process. Uh, my dad got me a Cabela's fly rod, you know, sometime in high school. And I, I played around a little bit with it without a, a ton of success. I grew up in Wisconsin. So, um, certainly some great places to fish, but, you know, never really got into it until, um, in college, I, I worked in Alaska in the summer and, uh, I met my, my now husband and, uh, you know, we spend a lot of, of early mornings before work. Uh, we worked on Prince of Wales Island in Southeast Alaska going out and, and fishing and exploring, um, a really special island down there. And that's when I, I started to pick pick up fly fishing. Um, you know, it's super challenging and, you know, fishing for, for sockeye is, is, you don't have to be very graceful at it, but um, they are picky. So lots of, of frustration and learning moments there. And then, you know, where I really picked it up is I, um, I worked for, I started working for Trout Unlimited after I graduated in Wyoming, and there I just had some spectacular member, TU members, uh, kind of take me under their wing and, and show me, um, you know, all the, the nuances and beauty and details and helping me with my cast and super grateful for that. And, you know, the dry fly fishing and clear mountain streams is um, really challenging and you kind of have to figure it out. Um, and then uh, more recently, you know, I, I've had some um, more more instruction from some really talented anglers here in Alaska, and and um, and continued tips tips from my husband as as uh, he's he's rowing the boat or we're uh, taking the kids out. So yeah, very neat. And you know, as you mentioned, you 
have kind of, you know, uh, been with TU since you got out of college. Tell us a little bit about your journey from being with TU in Wyoming to becoming the Alaska program director that you are today. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've been with TU for 13 years. It doesn't seem like that long. Uh, I started out working with TU volunteers in Wyoming, both chapters and councils, and, and helping them to, to implement conservation projects um, in their home waters, which was a great way to learn about about TU um, and how we we operate in, in local communities, but but also, you know, all the way up to, to Washington, D.C. I've had the Alaska bug since I've been tiny, um, though, and, and, you know, always wanted to get back to Alaska after working up here in college. So, um, you know, when we had the chance to, to make the move, my husband got a, a job up here uh, in Anchorage. We moved and I was lucky enough to continue to get to work for TU. And that was my first foray into learning about Bristol Bay and, um, you know, Alaska's trout and salmon issues. So I've been up here for 10 years and uh, about five years ago, the former Alaska director uh, left and I was asked if I was interested in applying and, you know, we're here. Here I am five years later and, um, you know, get to work with a, a really awesome team up here. Yeah, very neat. What does a normal workday look for you? Uh, look like for you in that role? <laughs> I don't know what's normal these days, Marvin. Um, I, you know, I, I start my days really early. Um, uh, you know, I, I creep downstairs and try to get as much work done uh, in the early morning hours before the kids get up, and um, it, and then you know, I, I think one of the the best parts of this job is the people I get to work with. So I spend a lot of my day on the phone or on, on video calls, either with our team of eight here in Alaska or, um, or colleagues, you know, from DC to the Pacific coast, um, trying to figure out how we, how we solve these really pressing, uh, conservation issues in Alaska. And then, um, you know, we have this incredible network of anglers, and other people that that care deeply about the issues we work on in Alaska because Alaska just you know it's special and it captures people's attention and um, you know I spend a lot of time talking with folks that that want to give back they want to give back to these places that they love to fish and uh, my job is to figure out how how they can do that and what that partnership between us and our work and their interests are. So whether that's um, supporting financially or volunteering or spreading the word, uh, that's a, a huge part of my job. Um, yeah, I think, and, and then also working working with partners. We we work with, um, you know, so many people to to accomplish our our goals. Um, you know, from local tribal leaders. Uh, in villages in Bristol Bay to federal and state agencies on restoring uh, other areas of Alaska that that need a help um, to businesses that uh, operate either here in Alaska or you know their products their fishing rods come up up here to Alaska and and you know it, it it's that community um, is wonderful and. I am honored to get a lot, spend a lot, a lot of my day connecting with those folks and, and helping us move forward with uh, what we want Alaska to look like in the future. Yeah, very neat. And we'll talk a lot more about Bristol Bay a little bit later on in the interview. But, you know, uh, you mentioned you're working on other initiatives in addition to that. Um, can you kind of briefly kind of outline kind of the major kind of non-Bristol Bay things that uh, you and your team are working on in Alaska? Sure, I'd be happy to. So we, you know, in general, TE works to take care of the places people love to fish in Alaska, you know, and, and I think some of those big places that like Bristol Bay come to mind, the Kenai Peninsula, the Susitna River drainage, um, and then the, the Tongass National Forest, which is, you know, you know, all throughout Southeast Alaska, like those are the 
these big, important uh, salmon and trout areas. And um, our work varies in each place, just depending on the circumstance. But in Southeast Alaska, for example, we are working to, to safeguard 77 of the most important trout and salmon watersheds in that area. And we've identified those through working with stakeholders and scientists um, and, and really kind of zoom in on, on you know, where the, the best and most uh, fish habitat is and, and getting those into better protection statuses, so better safeguards. And then in addition to that, there are a series of mines, massive mines in British Columbia on, on or near rivers that flow downstream into Southeast Alaska, which, you know, for many of the reasons um, that we got involved with Pebble, uh, you know, there's, there's similar things happening in Southeast Alaska and are, are working to make sure that, um, you know, the communities and fisheries downstream of those mines uh, are are protected and, and, you know, there's some safeguards put in place from these mines that together are much larger than Pebble. Um, so that's Southeast. Uh, we also have this great work where we, we, we help facilitate um, the salmon, salmon and trout habitat partnerships, which is a national program. And there's many here in Alaska and we're involved in, in um, Southeast Alaska. And we have met chapter members involved in the Kenai Peninsula and, you know, in Bristol Bay. And then also um, we're, we're new hosts to the Matsu salmon habitat partnership. So, um, and that's just great, you know, on the ground work in local communities of, you know, conducting needed science or um, facilitating restoration of rivers that need help, you know, from perch culverts to, um, you know, bank stabilization, water quality issues, you name it. Um, and are also, as part of that work, involved in um, restoring a, a river post dam removal. So, you know, I think a lot of folks think that Alaska's fisheries are in really good shape, which for the most part they are. Um, but there are some some areas that need a little help. And in order to keep Alaska's fisheries thriving, we we definitely have some restoration work on our hands. Um, and then lastly, you know, I an issue near and dear to my heart is um, we help run the Bristol Bay Fly Fishing and Guide Academy, which is a program that works to teach and empower and inspire uh, local kids in Bristol Bay, primarily uh, Alaska Native kids, and teaches them how to fly fish and what it's like to be a guide and uh, with the intention of, of getting more local kids as fishing guides in Bristol Bay, which will help on so many levels, um, you know, by bettering uh, local employment opportunities and and I think strengthening, you know, the entire social and economic system so that we can continue to say no to, to things like Pebble Mine. Yeah, very interesting. And I know from doing other interviews, like when I was lucky enough to talk to Chris, I guess, back in April, you know, and, and you mentioned this earlier in the interview, TU spends a lot of time on the ground, I think, you know, doing a lot of hard work to collaborate and build coalitions and have cooperative decisions. And, you know, one of the interesting things, um, you know, it's not unique to Alaska because we have it out kind of in the Western United States, too. But, you know, obviously, you've got mining oil and gas and timber and, I thought it'd be interesting if, for you to speak to kind of how you think policymakers ought to look at those um, extractive industries and, you know, when they work with other constituencies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that is like a, a multi-day workshop. We could, we could really um, try to map that out, but some quick thoughts on it, Marvin. I, I, I mean, first let's, let's just acknowledge like we need, we need those non-renewable resources for, for daily life. Like, you know, whether it's building houses or our electronics, like those are key to, to how we, how we operate. Um, but I, I think we have to get um, a little smarter on how, how we responsibly develop those resources and use those resources. And I think one piece of that is, is really doing some more full full cost and benefit 
accounting and analysis around these projects. I think so often, you know, a, a timber sale or a mining project um, or an oil and gas project, you know, just devolves into this environment versus jobs discussion and debate. And, um, you know, you hear things like, well, you care about fish more than you care about people. And, you know, I think, I think we need to do better there and, and really look at, um, you know, what, what are the costs associated with, with resource extraction as well as what are the benefits. But, but right now I don't think we do a very good job at looking at some of the costs and, and, and trade-offs to a, a resource development project. So, for example, like we need to fully understand, you know, what this land and water that would be impacted does for clean drinking water or for foods that local communities and villages depend on. Um, we need to talk about jobs and, and, you know, whether it's recreation or tourism or commercial fishing or commercial recreational fishing, like all of that you know, we really have to take a look at the full, the full picture. Um, uh, so I think that's one part of, of, of many, but um, I think also there's those intangible um, things that, that are often kind of pushed to the side, you know, like, and are really brought to light in a, in a pandemic, right. Where outside um, and on our, public lands and waters are, are some of the places, the only things we can do right now safely. And, you know, there's a lot of value in having these, these places that um, aren't developed uh, for giving back to families and, you know, nurturing our, our um, heart and soul during challenging times. And, and that's, um, I don't think we do a great job of, of taking those things into account. Yeah. And I know it's a challenge too, because you kind of have that kind of short-term cost and benefit, you know, the short-term cost and benefit and the long-term cost and benefit. And I think it's a challenge to kind of, to get people to kind of look, you know, more than five years down the road. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that, um, you know, we have, it's just part of, part of society right now. And, you know, I do think, in Alaska, you know, we, we are, we do care a lot about uh, the outdoors. And I think a big reason people care about that is because they want, they want those future generations, their kids and their grandkids to have the same opportunities that we all get to enjoy today. And, and I think, I think that just speaks to your point of, of, you know, how can we, how can we continue to look along that timeline versus, you know, yeah, yeah. How how can I have a job in five years? And I, I don't want to discount that because you know jobs are important for all sorts of community benefits, and and we need jobs. Um, but I think we also can get creative on on how these outdoor undeveloped places can better support communities economically, and and a lot of the numbers around outdoor recreation um, as well as tourism are, are, are huge when you, when you actually look at the numbers. And that's been one promising thing to me lately is, is, you know, the acknowledgement of, you know, a several billion dollar industry that depends on clean water and, you know, wild rivers and lands. Um, so, so huge, huge topic. Um, love to get some good thinkers in a room and, and detangle that. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll put that on the list maybe for the for the next time we talk. You know, and you've been lucky to live in Anchorage for about ten years and so you've had a front row seat for the Bristol Bay saga for a long time. What has that experience been like? Oh oh boy. It has been um both incredibly intense and inspiring at the same time. Um you know, when I, I can remember the, the first year I moved up here and, you know, jumped in on, on the Bristol Bay issue, I was at the Anchorage sports show and, you know, it just person after person would come up to 
to us and say, you know, I appreciate what you're doing, but there's too much money in the ground. You know, there's no way that mine's not going through. Like, good luck. Thanks. But, you know, basically you're going to fail. Um, and that was that was tough. Um, but, but, you know, thanks to so many people that have worked tirelessly on this. And, you know, we... We kept educating, we kept pointing out, you know, how big this mine was, where it was located, why that was bad, um, and, and you know, relentlessly over many, many years have, have finally got the message out and people understand how, how, uh, how big a deal this is and have pushed back and, you know, widespread opposition in Alaska, widespread opposition locally, and that thankfully has, has gotten the intention of investors. And we've seen um, all the investors at this point walk away. They don't have, you know, they're a, a foreign mining company that has never developed a mine before that is running out of money. So, um, you know, to take, to take, you know, this project from a sure thing to a project that, you know, well is, is on the, you know, we have a, a serious next couple months here. Um, but to take it from a sure thing that everybody thought was absolutely going to go through no matter what to a project that is widely opposed in Alaska and by hundreds and anglers across the country uh, to a, a project that is questionable. Uh, and and I, I think that is because people have spoken up time and time again, and uh, that has been the, the inspiring part. Um, and and also, um, you know, just knowing, getting to know, and, and working with uh, the folks in in villages that will be most impacted by the mine is incredibly important uh, piece of our work, and I'm inspired by it daily. Yeah, it's interesting too, right? Because I mean, the Bristol Bay, um, you know, pebble mine concern has been going on for about 15 years. You know, how did you keep the broad coalition that you've helped to develop and all the supporters energized over such a long term struggle? It is it is the thing that probably keeps me up at, at night the most about this campaign. Um, you know, I think. I think there's been a lot of, of strength in the growth and, and diversity of, you know, the coalition opposing this mine. Um, and, and there's, there's been waves of, of, you know, folks when there's urgency and, and highly involved and, and things get easy. And then there are, are times where, you know, it like things are wonky and it's hard to explain and, and you have to, um, kind of muddle through and figure out, you know, how to keep people plugged in. I think recently, um, I guess, I guess, you know, one, I think always getting back to the basics on, we are, we are trying to safeguard the last best remaining wild salmon habitat in the, in the world. Like 50 million salmon come back, have come back time and time again, the past couple of years, like, there's just nowhere else on the planet like Bristol Bay. And I think that is what motivates all of us. And, and you can overlay, you know, you know, caring about that because your culture and family and everything depends on it. Uh, you can overlay that with your love of, of fly fishing or, or salmon fishing. You can overlay that with, you know, your job and, you know, your boat and your family is commercial fish there forever. Like all of that boils down to, you know, this core common love of a very special place. And um, so that's, that's motivating. And I think motivating for all of us who work on it and, 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 and dedicated volunteers who have spoken up time and time again. Um, And then recently we've, we've really, um, you know, tried some new things on on social media and um, made sure that it's it's easy for people to plug in. You know, if you're going to weigh in, you know, multiple times, like we'll make it easy as possible for you. Um, 
making sure that we, we, we have new ways of spreading the words, whether it's short videos or new voices or um, pictures or, you know, you name it, is, is trying to adapt with the changing times and, um, and also tell the story of inspiration, of, of, right? Like we've taken this mine from a sure thing and now this is a, you know, a single company who's financially struggling that is desperate for a permit and if we just double down and hold the line, like we can get on to bigger and brighter conversations about how we keep Bristol Bay intact for the long haul versus, you know, fighting over a mine that should never be on the table in the first place. Yeah, it's really interesting. And we're going to talk about the the final environmental impact statement in a few minutes, but I, I did want to talk to you because I know you're you're the person in the know uh, about this because it's in your backyard. I guess the early part of June, uh, Trout Unlimited appealed um, a lower court decision that was unfavorable to the coalition uh, that was related to the proposed 404C determination for Bristol Bay. And my understanding is in July of 2019, uh, the EPA withdrew that determination um, and uh, TU and a broader coalition of, uh, of interest sued to have it reinstated, um, and the lower court found in favor of the EPA. And I, you know, I don't think a lot of people in the lower 48 are really familiar with this. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what the proposed 404C determination was supposed to do? Yeah, so there is a, a, a part of the Clean Water Act that, that says if a, a place is is really important for fish or wildlife or municipal water supplies or recreation that, that it can, and it could be impacted that you can say that those, those areas are, are either off limits or, or mine waste should be restricted in those areas because of their importance. Um, in 2010, um, tribes as well as commercial and recreational fishing fishermen and women petitioned the EPA to implement 404C, um, and that resulted in a multi-year process. And um, in 2014, uh, we had a a proposal, it wasn't finalized, but a proposal to restrict mine waste in in the Bristol Bay region and the the Pebble Deposit region, restrict the disposal of mine waste in the the Bristol Bay region. And, And, you know, that functionally would have unless you know Pebble could figure out how to mine the deposit and ship the waste to the moon or something uh you know that functionally stopped Pebble and put some really important um safeguards in place for you know incompatible industrial mining in Bristol Bay but it was never finalized so that is what has led to the the, the lawsuits. Got it. So it kind of lived in place for about five years. And then I guess in July of last year, the EPA withdrew the determination. You know, what was their justification for doing that? Well, they didn't have much of one. And, th- and that's the problem. And that was, you know, kind of the heart of the lawsuit is that, you know, they with- withdrew that for arbitrary and capricious reasons. And, you know, which basically means that they they did it for frivolous reasons or, or, or reasons that aren't justifiable by, by law or public interest or process. And um, that was, that was the heart of the lawsuit. And, and, and I guess the behind the scenes story is that, you know, Pebbles, the Pebble partnership and Northern dynasty spend hundreds of thousands of dollars a quarter. Um, they're one of, you know, they, they shell out a lot of money on, on lobbyists, both in D.C. and in Juneau. And, you know, I think I think they got they got to whoever the decision maker was and, and uh, convinced them to withdraw it. Yeah. And so was the federal district court ruling that the EPA was not arbitrary and capricious? Um, so, so they, we had to, we had to get past the process question and now we've appealed that, um, to the ninth circuit and we have oral arguments this, uh, next couple weeks, two weeks from now, um, where we hope that we'll get to talk about the merits of whether or not the, the, um, decision by the EPA was arbitrary and capricious. 
Got it. And so if you have oral arguments in two or three weeks, which would put you into kind of maybe the second or third week of August, when would you expect a decision from the Ninth Circuit? We hope pretty quickly. Um, the court has been, um, you know, understands the importance of, of resolving this um, prior to a permit being issued. So we hope, we hope soon, soon after. Yeah. And of course, you know, the big news for everyone that's been following uh, Bristol Bay and the proposed pebble mine is literally, I think, exactly a week ago. Uh, we're recording this on July uh, the 23rd. The Army Corps of Engineers issued its much anticipated final environmental impact statement uh, with the determination that the proposed mine did not pose serious environmental risks. And I don't think that was unexpected from everything I've sort of seen in the press. Um, You know, Nellie, from your perspective, what are the three most significant shortcomings of the report? Yeah, so so I'll I'll try to keep it to three and I'll I'll try to lump them into three big issues. so I, I think to fully understand, you know, what this document says and, and does not say, um, you kind of have to look at a Pebbles plan and what 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 they've applied for from the Army Corps of Engineers. And um, they've asked for a permit to build a 20-year mine with a whole bunch of infrastructure. Um, and then their their plan is to is to fill the hole they dig only after only after only mining 13% of the ore body, they're going to dig down to the, the most valuable part of the ore body and then say, Oh, you know what? We're good. We're going to fill the hole back in and walk away. And I think, you know, it, it, it takes a stretch of, of, of an imagination, regardless of who you are to think that is practicable and reasonable. And, you know, that this document is based on a, a, a false assumption that, that that is actually what is going to happen. So I think the number one issue with the final EIS is that, you know, it's not taking a reasonable look at how this mine will actually work. And um, the high likelihood that Northern Dynasty Minerals says time and again, this mine will expand. Um, you know, that that is the heart of, of why this document underestimates the impacts uh, of the mine proposal. Yeah. Um, yeah. And to put a finer point on that, I guess, am I correct in understanding? I mean, I've seen various things from various different groups that kind of, as as proposed, the mine is not profitable at all. Um, and That's I get, right. right. And, and then I guess one of the other things that um, the more time I've spent with this issue, um, I've heard several mining experts and in mining industry experts say that if you remediate the mine as proposed, which I guess is to take the tailings and fill the pool back, that it's it's impossible to then further exploit the deposit, which means that you basically are guaranteed to have an unprofitable project. That's right. That's right. Like. Y- y- you have hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars of infrastructure that have to be built to, to start mining, you know, a power plant, dozens and dozens of miles of road, a water treatment plant that's never been done before, um, a pipeline, like a port, all of that has to be built before you can dig the hole. And that costs a whole bunch of money. And it's, it's completely asinine that you're you're gonna you're not going to build a profitable like you're gonna stop mining until you hit profit right like and and we have you know the pebble partnership who's in alaska and they're you know they're like the marketing arm of of pebble and then you have northern dynasty the marketing arm of pebble that's saying you know what like we've adjusted this mine it's going to run perfectly you know it's we're, we're responding to, you know, all these concerns we've heard over the years. And then you have Northern Dynasty, which is the only owner of the Pebble, Pebble Partnership, saying to shareholders, this is a world-class resource. This has, you know, potential gen- a generation worth of, of minerals. Um, you know, they're, 
they're talking out of both sides of their mouth. And unfortunately, the FEIS has chosen to listen to the marketing arm um, and, and not really uh, peel back the, the covers and, and say, hey, it, actually, like, we need to take a closer look at this um, and, and evaluate what you will reasonably and practically do. Right. And, and you still got two more, uh, two more objections. So let's hear them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think I'll, I'll be quick with, with one of them. Like there's been many major project changes since this process started and the public public comment period closed back last July. I mean, and those, those project changes aren't just like moving the road a little bit or, you know, you know, different, different material for the pipeline. Um, this is like, they've, they've changed the preferred road route from going across to Lake Iliamna to building it across the entire Northern edge of Lake Iliamna, you know, a totally different location for the port. Their plan resulted in 40%, their plan change um meant that a 40% increase in the amount of water that would have to be treated, 30% more streams would be destroyed. Like we're not talking about small changes. Like there have been massive changes to Pebbles plan with, you know, no additional comment period, no additional analysis. Um, And, you know, that has been a, a real concern for, especially local communities and, and all of us that, that care about this, this process working and not cutting corners. Um, so I, I don't understand there. Well, I do understand like this process has been rushed um, and not thorough or robust as it should be when you're talking about a giant mine in the heart of salmon country. And um, you know, the only thing that, that I can think of is, the CEO of Pebble um, gets a $12 million bonus if he can get this, get this through the process and, you know, in four years. So, so um, we shouldn't be, we, we shouldn't be rushing for that reason. Uh, this is too important. That's my second one. And the third one. And the third one. So throughout the document, there is um, kind of concept level information that where details are absolutely and should be required at at this point we've we've been hearing um about pebble for 15 years they've had ample time to develop a really solid plan and we're getting you know bar napkin plans when when we should be getting finite details about how this is going to operate and why the things they're saying will actually happen. And, and one example, and this is a big one because, you know, clean water is important, right? <laughs> like to all of us. And um, they have proposed a water treatment plan that would have to process somewhere between 39 million gallons and 54 million gallons of water every day. And we're not just talking about, you know, kind of basic sewage treatment operations. Like we're talking about a complex water treatment plant that has to do everything from sediment, you know, filtering to, to pollutant um, and osmosis and like really challenging water treatment um, process. And, and they have, they have a concept level plan that is, has never really been tested anywhere before and have thus far failed to provide the details and the proof that this plan will actually work. And they do it also on the tailings dam. And there are, um, the tailings dam plan was designed and, and, and had a lot of input by the same folks that designed the Mount Polly dam uh, that failed several years ago with catastrophic impacts. Um, to the fisheries and the communities, like those plans um, are concept level at best. They're similar to a, a, a dam that has failed. And um, despite Pebble committing to an independent review before permitting, like that hasn't been done. And then we have 
information in the FEIS by the Army Corps of Engineers' own contractor that is tasked with the the FEIS development. And, you know, they have things in there like the tailing stand plans are incomplete and misleading. There's implications for embankment stability. And despite these very big red flags, the Corps of Engineers did not require nor do uh, the model of a full tailing stand failure, and which clearly could have much greater impacts um, than what are already known and on the table. So, um, so you know, all that adds up to, you know, there's a, a couple of, of choice quotes from the environmental impact statement that, that Pebble likes to highlight, but this document describes massive impacts, like a hundred miles of streams gone forever and 2000 acres of wetlands gone forever. And those impacts are, are highly underestimated because of the failure to fully analyze the, the, the impacts that this project will have um, both, you know, a 20 year timeline and a hundred year timeline. So, so there's, the list could go much longer than that, but those are the, the big, the big ones. Yeah. And so, you know, it's interesting, right? Because I know there are kind of uh, numerous kind of circuit breakers in the process. And, you know, my understanding is one of them is the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, And, you know, what I understand is that they have the ability to override or challenge the Corps' determination. Um, You know, I know it's relatively early on. but has there been any kind of uh, feeling or feedback from the EPA and how they've reacted to the to the report? Yeah, I mean, a few a few months ago, weeks ago, um, there, you know, the EPA wrote a letter that, you know, said that there's been numerous opportunities to raise concerns and that that EPA will continue to do so. They flagged a new species genetically distinct species of sockeye salmon in the Cocktooly. Um, and they, they didn't, you know, they didn't indicate either way what their action might be, but, you know, certainly are, are, are in constant conversations with the core. Um, there, there are several levers that can be pulled at this point. Like one, like Army Corps of Engineers in, in, from our perspective, has plenty of information in this final environmental impact statement to not issue a Clean Water Act permit and simply say, you know what, like, we can't issue this permit for reasons X, Y, or Z. And that's one way. And then, of course, the EPA has final final jurisdiction on, on clean water um, and everything that's under the Clean Water Act. And, and they could also say, you know what, if a, if this permit shouldn't be issued because it, it violates portions of the Clean Water Act. Um, and, and another option is that, you know, folks could say like, well, there's just too much missing information here. Like we need to, to go back and there's, do a, a supplemental environmental impact statement because we missed stuff. Um, I, I think, I think that the, the the first of those options is probably the best of the three options, the most most likely of the three options. But, you know, there's a lot at play right now. Um, you know, there's going to be a lot of this decision, I think, is going to be made at, at some of the highest levels of the administration. And um, and that's that's our job right now is to convince uh, who the EPA, the Army Corps of Engineers and, and the administration that this mine makes no sense, no matter how you look at it, and the permit should be denied. Yeah, got it. And to kind of, I guess, help me and help our listeners understand, is the Army Corps of Engineers' record of decision the same as issuing the Clean Water Act permit? Essentially, yes. Okay. And, and so, you know, how quickly can the Army Corps potentially issue its record of decision? Well, the earliest official uh, time is September 24th. Um, so a month, less than a month from now, uh, I think practically speaking, it'll be a little bit 
longer than that because there are, are several kind of sub approvals that have to happen both at the state level and through a couple different entities before they could issue a record of decision unless they kind of went out of out of typical process. But so and then they've been saying, you know, 30 to 60 days after a final EIS is when they would make a decision. Uh, they recently adjusted that to fall. Um but in my mind, fall starts in August in Alaska, so hard to tell what that means. Yeah, so we're talking about anywhere from, you know, middle of middle of August to middle of October, probably. Sorry, I think I misspoke. It, it would be August twenty fourth, not September. Would be the earliest. So sometime between, uh, kind of towards the end of August to the end of September. Um, yep. Yeah, and, and so another thing, kind of, you know, we've talked about the administrative. Um, kind of circuit breakers, you know, I know in kind of following the issue that um, Senator Murkowski has been concerned uh, once a science is said that she wants a science-based approach um, and has kind of deferred to the process. Um, you know, I'm kind of curious, you know, if you've heard from her and other kind of like-minded legislators um, uh, who have uh, responded to the report. Yeah. So, you know, I think one of the, for the folks that that really wanted um, the process to play out and and for you know a, an analysis to be done of this project you know in in the traditional process that that process has happened like we're we're at the end of it right like the impacts have been discussed in this document that was released last week um, this the senator issued um, Senator Murkowski issued report language. Uh, in the appropriations bill last year that said, you know what, if the issues raised by experts at the state and federal level um, and tribes uh, cannot be addressed, then the permit should not issue. And, um, and we're to that point. I mean, I think, I think we are all, uh, you know, digging deep into the final EIS to, to see um, whether or not those, those questions have been answered and, and, our take is that they they haven't. There's fatal flaws in this analysis that remain, and um, you know there's there's no way we should move forward with a mine based on a a less than robust process. Um, so you know I I hope I don't know, but I hope that um, those folks that have stood by the process will speak up in, in the coming weeks and, and, you know, say, look, like Pebble has had their chance and they have not proven that this mine can be developed safely or responsibly in, in Bristol Bay. And we, we shouldn't move forward with it. Um, that's my hope though. I, I, and I, and I think like that's, that's what Alaskan decision makers and, and decision makers at all levels need to hear right now. Yeah, and to sort of collapse all of that down, what does that make the coalition's advocacy for Bristol Bay look like over the next, say, six months to a year? It's, you know, there's a couple couple angles. Um, I think it's it's getting very loud on all fronts because we are on the verge of of a two two future realities, right? Like. We can either hold the line and convince this administration that this permit should not be issued, and 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 then we we get on to the bigger and better conversations about Bristol Bay, um, and and I think that is both targeting the White House and Army Corps of Engineers and 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 the EPA, and we know sportsmen and women in particular are important voices for them to hear from. So, you know, I would I would encourage anybody who cares about Bristol Bay to weigh in on that front. And then I also think, you know, Congress, um, they're important voices and, and leaders on this. This is a national issue, uh, an issue of, of national importance. And, you know, while there aren't super clear letter levers on what Congress can do, I think it's it's very important for people to be speaking up strongly on this issue, because if we don't, uh, we could we could see them get a major permit they need to advance a mine, and and likely with that comes a new investor. 
Yeah. And I guess, you know, to kind of, um, you know, in terms of taking action, um, you know, if someone wants to get involved, you know, how, how can they have the most impact? I know that Trout and Limited, Limited makes it very easy and some other organizations do, but say if someone says, I'm interested, I don't support the mine, how should they advocate for Bristol Bay? Yeah. So Trout Unlimited um, has, has run the SaveBristolBay.org website for a long time. And, and that, you know, has oodles of information and ways you can engage, whether it's volunteering or writing a letter or, um, you know, sending an email, sharing on social media. Um, all of those things are, are there. And that's your, your one-stop shopping for how you can help Bristol Bay. Uh, also following Save Bristol Bay on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter are, are huge. And that's probably like, you know, the most, that's where we put out our, our rapid response place calls for help are, are those on, on social media. Um, and then, you know, you can also find uh, broader information on tu.org. Yeah. And I'll drop links to all of that stuff in the show notes. And, you know, before I let you go, Nelly, so, you know, we know we've got um, the sportsman community, you know, even in the lower 48 really engaged, but you know, what argument should we make to non-anglers and non-hunters about why they should oppose uh, Pebble Mine? Bristol Bay is it, it, like, it's, it's everything we dream about when we dream about wild places to hunt and fish. Um, and, you know, I, I guess I would just encourage folks that if you, if you've been there, if you want to go to Bristol Bay, if you, if it's a dream that you hope your kids get there someday, like now is the time to act because if we don't, um, Bristol Bay might not be there. The Bristol Bay we know and love might not be there, um, in 10 or 15 years. So, uh, that is what I would, would say to folks in the lower 48, um, and then I, I guess I would just urge, urge folks um, to, to act, you know, whether that is, is financially a contribution, whether it's um, volunteering, writing letters. It's, it's very, very important right now. Yeah, absolutely. And Nellie, I really appreciate you taking some time today to chat with me. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that as much as we enjoy bringing it to you. Please check out the show notes to learn more about the proposed Pebble Mine and how you can take action. And again, if you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a review in the podcatcher of your choice. Tight lines, everybody. Tight lines, everybody.